you're still clapping like that uh, at the end of the evening. Need uh, the big one. But uh, it's really, it's really good to be here. Coming back to Quantico, I first came here before uh, any of the young officers in the room were alive in 1969. Uh, came here for my first of two summers. Uh, right here is where I spent some of my second summer here in 71. This was an obstacle course in those days right along the tree line here. And I still shake a little bit when I see a gunnery sergeant or a corporal uh, knowing what they referred to me as something to do with being a communist coming in to sabotage the Marine Corps uh, based on my performance up there. I also remember one of the best, uh, best lessons I ever got taught about the Marine Corps right here on this obstacle course. Uh, we were about the third week of senior PLC, and we were running the obstacle course in competition with another platoon. And I happened to be, just as it rotates through, the platoon leader that time, so of course here's the first one through. And I was way out in front of my, my, uh, my uh, competitor there, <clears throat> excuse me, and so I get to the, I kind of enjoying myself, hit the rope, go up, come down, <clears throat> and all of a sudden the sky, just everything darkened. <clears throat> and leaning over me with his hand on his hips, you can all picture it, uh, with the voice of the sergeant major who was up here before, was the guy who made the allegation that I'd come in to destroy the Marine Corps. He knew I'd only given 99% on my run through the O course. <clears throat> and he said, thank you, Sergeant Major, talking about that voice of yours. And he said, uh, when you give 99%, I'm going to be 100% dissatisfied with you, and I'm going to kill you. <clears throat> and that got my attention uh, right away. And he said, you either give 100%, and then I'll be happy no matter what happens, or get out. It was that simple. And the unapologetic Marine Corps introduced itself to me through that staff NCO, and that's probably had more to do with why I gave 100% at times than anything else that I could ever go back and tell you about reading in a book or uh, any class I was ever in in college. <clears throat> you know, it's kind of nice to come to Quantico. I'm coming from Washington, D.C. Uh, this morning, and we drive through the gate, and I nearly got out and asked the corporal at the gate if I could have political asylum from the nut house. <laughs> Great to be back here because for any Marine uh, officer anyway, this is home. This is where you were bred, where the NCOs put, first put their thumbprint on you, and it brings back just a rush of memories, uh, memories that have a lot of clarity, uh, I would say that. Uh, some are, are caused me to be a little shaky uh, for obvious reasons, but it's also a reminder that I came through the gate, my driver is a retired colonel. Chris, thank you. Um, it's interesting because, well, that's, that's one point not in my favor, uh, because uh, I remember once watching through my binoculars when we got, I'd managed to get my battalion surrounded in an open desert. Now that is almost impossible. <laughs> At that point you realize you're not the, the von Klostwitz of the world. Uh, as you notice your, uh, you notice your <clears throat> mortar platoon getting out pointing four mortar tubes south and four mortar tubes pointing north. Uh, as I was scanning the mess I'd gotten myself into, uh, I noticed all of a sudden an entire sheaf of dirt thrown from obviously a sable round from an enemy tank all over Lieutenant Woodbridge's, in those days, Lieutenant Woodbridge's vehicle. And I thought, well, I'm not going to look at that. There went Woody, and I looked elsewhere, <laughs> uh, right there. 
A couple hours later, I was called to the Regimental CP. We were on the move, and we got the word they're killing innocent people in the streets of Kuwait City. Uh, we are going to break through now, tonight, before it gets dark. We've got to get there. And so I went hurrying back over to my unit, <clears throat> and I looked over, and there was Chris Woodbridge. I said, Woody, I thought you were dead. And he said, so did I. <laughs> So uh, then I think I'm doing pretty good. Then I walk in here tonight, and Trisha, there I am with you and your number one fellow. And uh, then I'm being introduced by a guy. I got him shot, too. Um, and so it's always good to come back where you're welcome still. And Trish, uh, they didn't even take the knife away from her sitting next to me, which I thought was quite nice. Uh, back in the old days, the bodyguard would have removed all the weapons from somebody when I'd gotten their, their spouse nearly killed. Uh, but I, I bring this up because it just, yeah, I, I can keep right on going. I can go on and on and on about my sergeant instructor who was a corporal. I, I can keep on going. And the reason I bring this up is the still waters run deep in most of us in this room, whether you were a Marine or not, whatever service you were in, whatever business you're in now, we, I think, are very much aware of the gravity of what it is we stand for and what we do. And there is nothing inevitable about the survival, uh, the survival of this great, big, wonderful experiment that you and I call America. There's nothing certain about it. As you go back through our history, there was certainly nothing certain about George Washington's Revolutionary Army prevailing in that long, seemingly endless, for those in Washington who haven't read their history, seemingly endless war as we fought alongside the French for our freedom. And so what we need is a level of commitment and to look around this room and find business and industry sitting right next to Marines, active duty, retired, Air Force, Navy, Army, Marine Corps. I haven't seen any Coast any Coasties here? Not here? Well, they're usually here. Uh, but to see all of us sitting in the same room, all Americans, all committed in varying roles to the survival of this, of this country, is, is very heartening because we all know that the country is going through tough times right now. We've got a lot of internal issues. Uh, we're going to get through them. I'm very confident we'll get through them. It's going to take leadership. But I think, too, the clarity of the Marine Corps is something that this country needs right now. I went through the Commandant's planning guidance here, <clears throat> and then I read it a second time because I don't like reading something and agreeing with it completely. So I read it through a second time. I was looking very critically. Now I wanted to find something wrong with it. And you know, I got done with it and I sat back and I thought, there is clarity. There is a commander who knows what he's doing, who's done his homework, who's scoped the horizon, and has sat down and said, this is where we are going. There's no ambiguity. There's no perhaps this or if that. Now, will he have it 100% right? Of course not. Nobody ever does. But what's critical is, we don't get it 100% wrong. And I will tell you that in the 1990s, the U.S. military got it 100% wrong. <clears throat> we had ideas about effects-based operations. We bastardized a very good, a fine, workable Air Force doctrine for taking down closed, complex systems. It worked. It was well put together. And then non-Air Force people took it and thought, Eureka, we just found a whole new way of looking at war. And they applied it to an open system, a system where cowardice and courage, where cunning and tactics, where all these other mushy things go in. And throughout the 90s, we heard adverbs and adjectives like precision fires, 
Also, fires weren't always precision. We were always as precise as we could be. I mean, this is assuming that a caveman back 3,000, 5,000, whatever it is, years ago, said, ah, there's a saber-toothed tiger. I shall throw my spear that way. <laughs> no, I don't think so. We just got more and more precise. But over those years, we had this idea that if we can see the battlefield, we can win. Really? Two football coaches both can see the football field. One's going to win and one's going to lose. So we actually went down a road where we thought an algebraic equal sign was war. It was no longer about people. It was x plus y to the second power equals victory, or victory equals these things. And by the time we got done, we were still cutting the size of the U.S. Army, and we were deep in a war, and we now had soldiers going back-to-back 15-month tours, 18-month tours at times, with three months home. That's when you know you completely dorked it up. So we go through all this training and education, all the things we do here at Quantico, and the Marine Corps right now is recognizing at this point it's going to be a more maritime strategy. This happened. For the last 20 years, it was a more of a, a ground strategy, working against terrorists, this sort of thing. Now it's going to be more maritime. There's a plan guidance out on it, going to take a lot of work with industry, a lot of resources, but it's mostly going to take a change in thinking, training education, so that we drive industry and those solutions toward the actual relevant ways of dealing with this world we're coming into. The strategic challenge is very clear, and I'm going to run over for just a minute because this may get us some good questions or challenges in the event you think I'm missing something. First of all, terrorism is going to remain with us. That's all there is to it. It's an ambient threat. It's going to still be here when all of us are done doing what we're doing now and probably our children, when they're still in their career, are dealing with it throughout their, their uh, career time. I bring this up because in 1984, George Shultz, Secretary of State, by the way, former Marine who at Stanford University where I work, is always first to say what, is, what he is, not Secretary of Labor, not Secretary of Treasury, not Director of OMB, not even Secretary of State. He always says, I'm Major Schultz, U.S. Marine. Okay? Formative years, Pacific Campaign, and ever since then, that's formed how he looks at the world. 1984, New York City, he says, terrorism is coming. It's going to kill innocent people. We are going to lose troops, and we're going to have to preempt it, or we'll lose even more. 17 years before that very city was hit by a terror attack, he was already seeing with clarity what was going to happen. For some of us in the room, I did six, seven of the casualty calls for Beirut 1983 when we lost the barracks there and the French paratroopers uh, were hit. We lost an embassy in Beirut. But as we look at the terrorist threat, remember it comes from two directions. One direction, of course, is the attack on 9-11, Al-Qaeda-associated elements. In the mid-90s, they declare war on us. It was in the 80s, early 80s, that the Lebanese Hezbollah, the associated uh, Iranian terrorist, declared war on us. So why do I bring up something that old? Because the root causes of terrorism are still with us. We're going to have to deal with it and try to deal with it in a way that we don't surrender our constitutional liberties, our constitutional rights, which means we are going to be taking risk and it's going to be hard when the country gets hit. I would also point out on the terrorism that there's something else going on that may be changing uh, the level of threat, and that is that we notice there are safe houses now <clears throat> in Tehran for Al-Qaeda. That is very different. 
if they jump the air gap and now the Iranians are starting to fund not just Lebanese Hezbollah and Shia terrorists, but also the in extremist Al-Qaeda elements that we've hit hard, that's going to be a very, very different threat if it manifests in that way. Remember, this was a country that tried to murder the uh, Saudi Arabian ambassador less than two miles from the White House, and but for one mistake, they're going to do it with a truck bomb in Georgetown on a Saturday night, by the way, uh, but for one mistake, they'd have pulled it off. They made one mistake, and we did nothing about it. So we've slammed Al-Qaeda hard. We've also watched Lebanese Hezbollah not get hit hard, and the Iranians are, are madder than a hornet right now for obvious reasons. If they can somehow combine this terrorist threat and it mutates in that direction, it will move up in terms of the amount of effort we have to put into it. <clears throat> Thanks to some of our allies, a number of them, until at least the last couple of weeks, uh, ISIS has been broken in many parts. Uh, it's not over, of course. Al-Qaeda in North Africa, the French have handled very well in a brilliant campaign that we support. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but at the same time, terrorism is going to continue. But terrorism can change some aspects of our life. They cannot, they cannot change our total way of life. So let me talk about the three big ones that can do that. One is that little country there on the Korean Peninsula. And in terms of urgency, that is one we're going to have to deal with. That one is going to take allies to deal with it if we don't want it to go to war. And right now, uh, any kind of diplomacy by drama has not worked. The missiles still exist, the weapons still exist, and we're going to have to figure a way to deal with it. In terms of urgency, North Korea. In terms of power, Russia. In Russia right now is in the hands of a man who, he's not a Hitler, but he's a guy, he's a character out of Dostoevsky. He sees nightmares all around the periphery. And Russia is going to act as if there's nightmares around the periphery, mucking around in our elections, European elections, uh, the fighting that's going on down in the Crimea, what they're trying to do up in the Lithuania forests and that sort of thing with their little shenanigans. This is something we're going to have to deal with. And we are listening to a degree of cavalier talk about use of nuclear weapons by Putin and his henchmen that none of his predecessors, at least not since Khrushchev in the UN back in about 1959 or 60, has ever talked about nuclear weapons. So it's a real problem, it's a real challenge, <clears throat> and Russia is trying to destroy the sovereignty of nations around them. Uh, when you look at China, <coughs> I've been talking too much today, as you can tell, this is the danger of will. So urgency is North Korea, power is Russia, will is China. Now on China, they, in the finest tradition of the Qing dynasty, they want tribute states around them. It's a little bit like Russia that wants a veto authority over the diplomatic, economic, and security decisions of their, of their near abroad, and China takes a rather expansive view of the near abroad. I was meeting with my counterpart in Beijing uh, a while ago, and when I had a job, uh, back then. <laughs> and I said to him, uh, "You know, you and I are going to have to figure out something here because we are two nuclear-armed superpowers, and we're going to disagree with one another once in a while. We got to figure out how it is we're going to deal with our differences, how we're going to manage those." <clears throat> and he said. Um, well, he said, uh, you know, you, you insulted us by pulling us out of RIMPAC. 
<coughs> I said, really? I said, if you'll remember, your president told President Obama he would not militarize the Spratly Islands. And two months before RIMPAC, you put weapons on the Spratly Islands. And he said, well, you know, the Spratlys are ours, and this right. And I said, that's not the point. I said, either your military is ignoring its civilian leadership, which worries me greatly, or someone's not telling the truth here. He said, well, they were defensive weapons. I said, General, you and I are wearing suits right now, but we're both generals, okay? I've been shot at by defensive weapons and offensive weapons. I can't tell the difference. But the, the challenge is, again, you see, like with Russia, this attack on other nations' sovereignty, piling on, on debt on them, so that you now have them enslaved, and we see them take the harbor in Sri Lanka in a 99-year lease. We find them trying to do it in Toluga, uh, an island in the Marine Corps' history, uh, down in the Solomons. So we see this going on. There is no reason to think they will not try to impose their authoritarian model on the uh, on the play, on other nations as well. When we watch what's going on in, in uh, Hong Kong right now, what they threaten with with Taiwan. So we're going to have to figure this out. And again, with allies, with allies, and with allies. And this is a point I want to make. Uh, when I went into the Pentagon, we had not had a new strategy in ten years. We've been occupied with the war. It was not about a slam on any political party. Ten years was more than one political party. Uh, but we had not had a strategy. We had strategic defense reviews, you know, that, that sort of thing. We hadn't had a strategy. And so we put together a strategy that took into account these, way, these countries that could actually change our way of life. And we put it together, and then I shopped it around on Capitol Hill. I talked to the key people up there, the thoughtful men and women up there with a lot of, lot of corporate background on watching us, decades of service. Uh, went to NATO, talked to our allies there about it. And when we brought it out, it was very, very effective. It was accepted to begin with that this new strategy would be, uh, be employed. It got us for two years in a row. It had, uh, we achieved uh, record-breaking budgets. And I say that because when 80, I think it was either 83 or 87 percent of the House and Senate vote for the defense budget at a time when people think nothing can be done up there, no, there's nothing bipartisan up there, it shows that if you have a good strategic argument and you engage with the American people, you can get what we need. America can afford survival. And so as we put this strategy together to address these threats, the whole idea was to ensure that our diplomats speak from a position of strength. When Secretary-designate Rex Tillerson came to town the same night that I showed up for our, uh, our get ready for the Senate hearings and all, I called him up. And uh, I said, I'd like to see you, meet you. We haven't met before. And he said, absolutely. He was batching it up there in town, too. So 28th of December, two old guys with gray hair in the back of a restaurant were sitting there talking, you know, just, just like you do when you get, get into a position where you need to know somebody. And, we're, you know, where'd you get your values from? How'd you grow up? That sort of thing. Well, he grew up, his dad delivered milk in a milk truck around the neighborhood. Uh, worked his way through college, met his number one squeeze, became an engineer, joined ExxonMobil, and next thing you know, he's a CEO dealing with guys like Putin and living in Yemen for two years. Uh, Eagle Scout, Texas, you know, big guy, hat, you know, all that stuff. 
uh, mean, kind of boring, just Marine, you know, infantry. And we're talking, and, and I said, you know, I think that over the last 20 years, we've militarized our nation's foreign policy, and we need to make certain the State Department drives our foreign policy. I'll give you the military factors. I'll tell you what you need to know. I'll tell you what we can do, what we can't do. But when it comes down to our foreign policy, we need State Department's diplomats in the driver's seat. And I said, it hasn't always uh, worked out well. I said, I've been in the Marine Corps for 40 years, and there are times the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense wouldn't walk across the Potomac River and shake hands with each other. And we lost troops killed because of that sort of thing, where that, that disenchantment actually rippled all the way down through. <clears throat> and so I said, I want to work with you, but uh, let's always settle our differences before I walk in the White House. The White House will never settle it between state and defense. We're going to settle it together ahead of time, then we'll walk in. <clears throat> and he just reached over the dinner table there and shook hands. We shook on it. And every week we met. Same, continue the same thing, by the way, with Secretary Pompeo when he came in. Every week we met. We talked two, three times a week to make certain we were aligned and transparent with one another. And I bring this up because that, that ultimately what that uh, strategy had to do was put our diplomats in the driver's seat. And by that I specifically mean that what my job was was not simply to run the military stuff and oversee that <clears throat> for the country. My real job was to make certain that we could keep the peace for one more year, one more month, one more week, one more day, one more hour, and give the diplomats time to work their magic, even if it was just what passed for peace. In other words, it was a war, but we were trying to keep it from spreading. And that was the real job of that strategy. That was my real job. And I had a stand-up desk in my office about this tall. <clears throat> and the first week I walk in there, of course, in come the deployment orders. Remember, we don't send one ship overseas. We don't deploy one Army infantry company. One Marine U, U, we don't send anybody overseas, uh, move them anywhere across in the world without civilian oversight of the military. A civilian signs that deployment order. And now I had to look at it, not what was my advice about deploying, was it the right thing to do. So I wrote out a handwritten note and it said, will this deployment contribute sufficiently to the well-being of the American people to be good enough reason for these troops to die. Not to send them in harm's way or in peril or possibly be injured. Was this sufficiently important to have those people die for this country? And I scotch taped it to my desk, picked up and took it with me when I came, home, came out of there, by the way. Still got it home as a reminder of the gravity of what we were dealing with. But as a result of that and those deployments and the strategy, I hope that we did something that reduced the cost of this country and the number one way that we were doing that in terms of the operational art was wherever we could make more allies. Remember that old Marine adage that they teach you at Quantico? If you're going to a gunfight, what is it? Bring all your friends with guns, right? So everything we did was we tried to, Condoleezza Rice taught a bunch of this back when she was the, uh, the NASA security advisor. She said, always do things with your allies, by, with, and through your allies, not to your allies. And I never forgot what she said, that studied professor, that, that studied national security leader that she was. She really knew what she was talking about. 
And as a result, we worked that way with our allies at a time when we sometimes had difficult trade uh, negotiations going on and other things happening in the, in the political realm. We were pretty much able to keep our alliances together even when they were under a fair amount of attack. Remember, the greatest generation came home from World War II, looked around, said it's a pretty crummy world. Hundreds of thousands of our buddies dead. We went through a Great Depression getting here. Crummy it is, but we are part of it whether we like it or not. We tried walking away from the world once before. We've done it right after World War I, and we look what we got from it. So now we weren't going to do that. And what comes out of it? What comes out of it is the United Nations, that imperfect organization to talk through problems, never designed to be perfect or solve everything. We came up only a couple years after what the Nazis had done in Europe and the Japanese had done to our POWs with the Marshall Plan to put our enemies, even our enemies, back on their feet economically. We came up with Bretton Woods 1 and Bretton Woods 2, which basically said if people are hopeless and fearful, they don't have to turn to a bald-headed fat fascist like Mussolini. Here's a lender of last resort. You and I know it as the IMF for the World Bank. All these things went on, and then I was having lunch one night with an Allied ambassador in Washington, D.C. Uh, lunch one day up there, and a beautiful day, and he said, and the Americans made the single most self-sacrificial pledge in world history. I'm saying, and I know something about American history. This guy's an Australian. I said, you mean the Marshall Plan? He said, no, no. He said, the Marshall Plan was great. He said, I'd never seen anything like that done before in history. He's a real historian, but he said, no. No, he said, you bet a hundred million dead Americans in a thermonuclear war to defend democracy in Western Europe. What was the alternative? The alternative was us looking at it and saying, that's twice in 25 years you dragged us into one of your frickin' wars and we're through with you. We're going with Africa, Asia, South America. We're not getting involved with you anymore. Good luck with the Russians who are building up there in Germany. Instead, we put 100 million dead Americans on the line if it went wrong and said, we're standing with you. And NATO grew out of that. And isn't it ironic that the first time NATO goes to war is when? When America's attacked on 9-11. So if you ever wanted to see what the greatest generation could see so clearly after what they'd been through and why that garden that we planted of the INF and the World Bank and of the, what the Marshall Plan started and what UN is, if you ever want to see why we need to tend to that garden, to water it, to fertilize it, to keep it growing, to trim it, to adjust it, to meet our, our current needs, just go back to what the greatest generation did. Because they're called the greatest generation for two reasons, really. It's not just that they beat fascism. A young graduate student, late 50s, go down and knocks on the former President Truman's door and says, I want to interview you. And uh, one of the questions Kissinger asked him was, as a young guy, fresh home from the wars and all, getting his PhD now, he said, what are you proudest of? And without a moment's hesitation, Truman said that we whipped the fascists and then welcomed the German and Japanese people at time deal back into the community of nations. There's wisdom right there. I hope what we're defending here today is understood in those terms of just what we were given, because that may have been the greatest generation, but for many with my color hair, we were the luckiest generation. 
We were the lucky ones brought up by those guys who parachuted into Normandy and took Iwo or flew against Ploesti or Midway. And we were the ones who were the recipients of all that wisdom. And you have to ask ourselves, are we doing as well for our next generation as that generation did for us? Let me stop there because I want to take questions here this evening. Who's got, uh, who's got some good ones? The decisions up there, uh, they're difficult only, you know, the, the Marine Corps trained me well, educated me well, and the decisions were only difficult <clears throat> when I didn't have the time to consider, give them as much consideration as I wanted. But uh, probably the most difficult decision was the decision to leave the best job that I could have been in right then. And it, it was a reality. Uh, there, there comes a point where, uh, where you do your best. I come from that school that says when the President of the United States asks you to do something, you do it. You just roll up your sleeve, do it, Republican or Democrat. If you're prepared, if, as long as you know you can do the job, you do it. And in the job interview, I disagreed with the boss uh, three times. Uh, once was on NATO, by the way, and allies. Once was on uh, the use of torture. I forget the other one right now. Um, and he hired me anyway, and there came a point where I thought it was probably best uh, that I leave the job because I thought the department needed a spokesman who would uh, gain more traction with the boss. No rancor, no uh, nothing else. I laid it out in a letter that I made public. I, I didn't, I didn't want to hide anything, so it's exactly where I stand. Uh, but that was probably the toughest part of it was leaving with the with the lad still in the fight. <clears throat> Our second question comes from Lieutenant Colonel Klausman, United States Air Force. He's a uh, student at the Marine Corps War College. As the U.S. makes an effort to refocus on great power competition short of conflict, how can senior military leaders better prepare for operations in the gray zone? What do you see as the biggest challenge or Achilles heel in the way we organize, train, and equip? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because you'll hear things like hard power and soft power. Uh, and I would just say that uh, probably the most important thing for leaders is to keep stressing what strengths we have. Uh, there's too many people running around talking about the sky is falling. A recent article I read changed the word soft power to sharp power, where you sharpen what you're going after, like in the information space, or you're defending, as we did very effectively, by the way, last year, our off-year, ele our, our non-presidential elections. We are very successful at it. So I think it's most important that you look at the strengths that we have. And, and this is, uh, some of you have probably heard me say this one before, if you looked on YouTube or something. But remember that America has two fundamental powers and don't get into exactly tit for tat, you know, that sort of thing. Symmetric for symmetric or asymmetric for asymmetric. I'm reminded of when we were in <clears throat> Al-Anbar province, some of us, and out in the western Euphrates River Valley, uh, and we pull into a place, and it's terrible fighting. In, in some of the areas, we're outnumbered, uh, we're stretched too thin, we don't have enough people, we're under a troop cap. 
that sort of thing. And I pull in in the middle of the night, and when the sun comes up, this lieutenant in the middle of nowhere with his 40-odd sailors and marines is out there trying to block a rat line where the enemy is trying to infiltrate into Ramadi, Fallujah, Baghdad, and points east. And his job is to stop them. And so the sun comes up, and we're talking. Uh, there's, you can't see anything except a little ribbon of green way off in the north, the river off there. And uh, he said, by the way, we caught a guy laying an, uh, an IED on the road you were coming in on last night. I said, really? That's kind of personal. Uh, he said, yeah, well, he said the guy speaks English. I said, really? Yeah, two years in England, year in Switzerland, engineer. And so he said, you want to talk to him? I said, sure. They brought him over, and I was talking with him there. And I said, what are you doing this for? You know, it wasn't his best night. He was kind of shook up. You know, the Marines cut his little cuffs off. And, <laughs> and he had his wheelbarrow out there, his two artillery round, his car battery, digging a hole, and looks up, and there's five guys with automatic rifles around him. He knows his retirement plan is in jeopardy. <laughs> Not a dummy. And, uh, and he starts off with this rant, and I said, what, what are you doing this for? You're Sunni, we're the Marines, we're the only friends you've got. You know, what are you doing this for? And he says, uh, oh, you Jews, you Americans, you want to steal all the oil. I said, no, actually we don't. I pulled my wallet out every time I put gas in my car, but, you know, you're an educated man, so just go away, I'm not going to listen to this crap. And, he, and he, the Marines stepped forward to take him away, the, the young fellow is guarding there, <clears throat> and the guy said, uh, got up and had a hard time getting up because his legs were still cuffed and everything. And he said, uh, can I sit here for a minute? I said, sure. And so he's sitting there, and after a minute he said, well, I just don't like having foreign soldiers in my town. Well, I can understand. I can respect that. I wouldn't want them want in my town either, outside here. And he said, um, you know, it just, just drives me crazy. I said, well, okay, that, that's understandable. And so we talked for a while about his family. They lived about 10 kilometers away down on the river. They'd been forced out of Baghdad by the terrorists, the, the uh, Shia terrorists there. And he said, um, well, he asked me, he said, I'm, I'm probably going to jail. I said, oh, yeah, you're going to Abu Ghraib. You're going to be wearing an orange jumpsuit for a good long time. You're lucky you're not dead. And he said, um, getting ready to leave, and he said, do you think, General, if I'm a model prisoner, my family and I could immigrate to America someday? Now you think about that. Those of you who think this country isn't, isn't great or isn't inspirational, just think about, here's a guy literally trying to kill us, and we have the power of intimidation, and my Marines were damned intimidating, and they had him, good to, good to go, he's going to jail. They could have killed him for that. But the power of inspiration could reach halfway around the world what America is. He would love to be sitting right where you are tonight with his two daughters going to school in our schools. And that's the real power of America. But we're getting to the point where we're doubting those powers today. We're doubting the power of inspiration. We're even having some people doubt our power of intimidation. Those are our two fundamental powers. When you look at the way China's treating Hong Kong tonight, and threatening to treat Taiwan and what they've done to Ceylon, to Sri Lanka. When you look at what Russia is doing, they're not going to win the allies like we have. And they're, our allies are ours to lose. So let's remember, how do we prepare for the gray zone? Be more of what we are. And let's go back and read our original documents and remind ourselves what we are. Because we are not a racist country. We're not a transactional country. We're not a misogynist country. We are the good guys. We're not the perfect guys, 
but you'll go a long way to find a country more willing to work to improve itself and willing to accommodate that we messed up and we're going to do better. And so we just got to get back, I think, to having confidence in ourselves and don't let the gray zone scare you. We're more competitive in the gray zone than anybody. Go ahead, Chris. Who want to earn a commission? A commission. Well, uh, first of all, recognize where you're at right now is probably one of the most satisfying jobs you'll have, because for an officer to do their job well, they actually have to deny themselves some of the most satisfying parts of relations between Marines. Because it, the the reason I stuck around that low pay and outfit so long was just for the rambunctious, wonderful nature of the Marines. I mean, I, frankly, I hated some of the jobs in the Marine Corps. I grew to hate minefields in training. I didn't even have to get into them like I did later. I already hated minefields at a young age. And I, I certainly didn't care for some of the other things that I did. But I loved being around young guys who literally would bite all the way through their lip as they're probing in a real minefield and looking over and see the blood trickling down as he's so tense, looking for something he doesn't want to find but he would keep probing and keep going. So I think that to stay close to those people uh, gives you a degree of spiritual strength, a degree of, of liberation, a degree of, of enthusiasm about life. And when you move into the officer ranks, uh, you become a little, you become remote from that. You have to work hard to stay connected to those very, very young, young folks who are willing to put it all on the line. Uh, if you're willing to make that pay, pay that price to move into that, then what I would suggest first of all is take total possession of your own responsibility for learning. Uh, there'll be a lot of people who will give you advice. There'll be a lot of books to read. There'll be a lot of schools to go to, but it's most important that you recognize if you're not at the top of your game, there's going to be some 19-year-old who's going to get zipped into a body bag, and we're going to lose enough of the young folks that you, you've, you don't want to look in the mirror and say, I didn't make every effort to be where I needed to be. And that is not something you do with a donation. You know, like they say, an egg gives a donation, when, or a chicken gives a donation when it lays an egg, but a pig gives a commitment when it gives a ham, you know that thing? <laughs> well, you got to be a totus porcus marine, you know. And it's not to say enlisted or not, but becoming an officer, they just give you too darn much to think about. So you just got to work at it all the time and try to stay at the top of your game. And just make sure that the time, by the time you're done each day, you're a little bit more prepared for what's going to come. Because when 9-11 hit, there was no time then to say, gosh, I think I'd better start studying. And yet, two weeks later, I'm sitting there, or two months, no, uh, three weeks later, I'm sitting with a three-star admiral. I was a one-star. And he explained how Afghanistan was going to fall, that the CIA and the Green Berets were going to get the enemy out of Mazari Sharif. They'd fall back on Kabul. Admiral had done his homework. He said, no one's held Kabul in 500 years. They'll fall back on their spiritual home, Kandahar. And then he turned and he looked at me and he said, can you get the Marine from the Pacific Fleet and the Mediterranean Fleet together 
land in southern Afghanistan, 350 nautical miles one way, and move against Kandahar and raise hell. I say, yeah, I can do that. I didn't have any time then to go read. I didn't have time then to study the uh, capabilities of the KC-130 and the uh, CH-53 Echo. I had to know that stuff. I knew the Marines. I knew what I could do, and thanks goodness for the U.S. Navy, because that was the real reason we were able to go in right there. So you've got to be planning, thinking, and looking at history, and don't study it, but live in it if you're going to be an officer. The alternative is you get into a jam, and now you're scratching your head, and the enemy's stealing a march on you. So for you got to take responsibility for your own learning, because you will not get any time. You will not get any time when you get tapped on the shoulder. It, it's time to stand and deliver. And the former Marines, the veterans, they will not tolerate you saying, well, it was hard. History will never accept that as an excuse. Go ahead, Chris. Sure, this question is from uh, Second Lieutenant Abraham Herrera, also from the Basic School. Who have been your most influential scholars or military leaders that informed your worldview and foreign policy? And how have they influenced the way you think? Uh, for inside the military, probably General Gary Luck, uh, U.S. Army four-star. But my worldview, gosh. You know, it's interesting because we all need coaches and mentors. Uh, and I had great ones. I went from one great mentor to another. Um, I remember my first three platoon sergeants. First one was Corporal Wayne Johnson, uh, immigrant from the British West Indies, green card holder. Uh, of course, we immediately called him John Wayne, Wayne Johnson, you get it? He's all of about five foot five, and he's the one who taught me that you got to be harder than petrified woodpecker lips, Lieutenant. Um, my next platoon sergeant was Corporal Manuel Rivera, green card holder. Some claimed he had faked the green card, but he was an immigrant from Mexico. Um, and he was a very like authoritarian corporal, and yet I would see him always, when somebody had screwed up, go off and quietly take the guy aside later before it got dark or something, go for a walk with him. And he was, he was unhesitating in correcting the slightest misstep but he always would then follow up. And I think everyone knew that he was, he was there for them. My third team sergeant, finally I got a staff sergeant, Staff Sergeant Remy Lebrun out of Quebec, Canada, green card holder. I started thinking they were all green card holders. <laughs> and I, why am I talking about two corporals and a staff sergeant? Because I was an infantry officer, and especially in the infantry, the young NCOs that you're with, and they're all, even the, the senior NCO can, can easily be 25, 26, some cases younger, they, they are probably put the strongest stamp on you about how you approach your job because you're so impressionable as a young officer. And between Quantico and the NCOs here, and then the first NCOs in the fleet, 18 months under them, I think from then on, I never doubted what my role was vis-a-vis -vis the young troops. They, they had formed it in me, and I was ready to go. And that influenced me even when I'm sitting now with prime ministers and kings and sultans and presidents. I'm thinking back to what those people represented, the level of commitment and devotion to duty. And just uh, as I listened to people talking <clears throat> about you know their what they were thinking we had to do or something. In my mind's eye, I could see these guys who'd actually have to climb off the helicopters and do it. 
and it helped guide me in my appreciation for using military force. Our next question is from uh, Lieutenant Colonel Aaron Lund uh, from the Marine Corps War College. People are our strength. What must we change in our talent management paradigm in order to better compete with the great powers? Well, I would only caveat that by saying the right people are our strength. Because there are some people you don't want on the team. You know what I mean? I mean, remember, even Jesus of Nazareth had one out of 12 go to crap on <laughs> So, you don't, you don't want to wrap everybody in, you know, in, in glory. You know, there's some people that, that uh, the selection process is good, but it's not perfect. Um, but I, I think, you know... It, you've got to create a sense of capability and capacity in everyone. Uh, I remember I was talking to I was a lieutenant colonel when I commanded 17, <clears throat> and our regiment commander was a guy named Fulford. And we were walking back one night, and we'd, we'd been in the desert for like six and a half months, and we'd just come from a meeting where all the fresh units, second division had come in, and the rest of first marine division, part of third marine division, so we thought those of us who'd been out there for six, seven months, well, well, we'll kind of be in reserve now. And when they read off the assignments uh, for 7th Marine for Task Force Ripper, it was to open the way through the, through the minefields. And then when they got to the battalions, it was 1-7, which would be one of the assault battalions going in and everything. We were walking away that night, the, and it was Buster Diggs, the tank company command, battalion commander, and Chris Cortez. and. I, all three were commanding staff college classmates, known each other for 20 years, 15 years anyway. And then Buster just stopped there because we were all kind of surprised. We really thought we were going to be in reserve. You know, we kind of worn out. And I was down to about 125. I lost about 40 pounds myself. Not good. And Buster turned around and looked at me and says, you know, he says, the boss, he believes in us so much, I know we're going to do it. You know, there were all those notes about we were going to lose hundreds of people and all this sort of thing. And there was no follow-on mission then for Task Force Ripper after we broke through. And even 19-year-old Lance Corporals know what that means. You know, there's no mission for us. And so I, I would just tell you that to create a sense that you believe so much in your subordinates that they can't let you down, uh, it's an affection it's not just trust and respect. There's something more there. It's an affection. It's not popularity with all the favoritism that goes with popularity. There was an affection there that said, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And by the time the sun came up, rewriting plans and doing everything else, we were on our way. And I, it was, frankly, it was a great time for me because it's the last time I brought everybody home alive from a war. Uh, so, I mean, never take, I would just say never take Colonel, the, uh, you know, doubt your doubts, don't doubt your strengths, okay? Just, just don't doubt your strengths. Just hold, keep the line. You know and I know when you point, the Marines will move against the enemy. So just put it together. We know how to fight and, and make sure that you, you hold fast to what we're, we're good at, and that's fighting. We can fight like the Dickens. And, uh, but doubt your doubts, don't doubt your strengths. Other questions? So, these questions from uh, Expeditionary Warfare School. Good evening, sir. Thanks for uh, taking the time to answer our questions. Uh, as company grade officers, we're returning to the fleet and in, in your future. How do we best bridge the gap between the NPS and the Commonwealth Planning Guidance? 
Yeah, I wasn't able to find any gaps uh, between the two, and I went back through looking for them, because whether we, I mean, it's going to be because the American people, the size of the Army has been so shrunk, and the Army's having trouble making a quota right now on the recruiting. I think they're going to pull it off, but it's so small uh, compared to our responsibility, the growing, uh, the looming troubles. <clears throat> that we are going to end up with a more maritime strategy for that and for some other reasons as well. So uh, the Marine Corps' move uh, in terms of within the framework, the framing principles of the NDS about working with allies, about dealing with high, uh, you know, high-end competition, uh, is going to take a Marine Corps that's making the very changes the Commandant of the Marine Corps has called for in that, that Commandant Planning Guidance. I did not see gaps in it, and I looked for them. Uh, I, I would have been, if I were still the Secretary of Defense, I'd have just checked it off and say, press on. You know, figure out how to do it now. You, the clarity is there. Now figure out how to do it. And I've read all the war plans, so I know what the war plans look like for the, the major, major wars. And the Marine Corps will, will do very, very well, increasingly well, if they follow Commandant Planning Guidance. You know, be even more more of a contributor to the joint fight. Sorry, I have time for uh, one last question. Gonna get off easy here. It's gonna get weird if we're looking at each other and no one's saying anything. <laughs> All right, there we go. General, Mr. Secretary, uh, you talked a little bit about Russia's concerns about their rim, China's concerns about their rim. Yeah. Uh, I'd ask you how you would compare that to the Monroe Doctrine for the United States. And then two, your take on the Russian, Syrian, Turkish uh, conundrum that yeah. we have today. Well, the Monroe Doctrine <clears throat> was designed actually to protect sovereignty in the New World. Whereas the spheres that China and Russia are trying to impose actually subordinate other nations, uh, other nations' uh, sovereignty. So the question for those of you in back was how do you how do you look at the Monroe Doctrine, where we said that European powers need to stay out of the Western Hemisphere because of all the troubles they were bringing when they came over or had brought before previously and then what we can see brewing in Europe, you know, where we get drawn into war. Whereas China is trying to impose their authority over the South China Sea, over Hong Kong. And for those who say, no, well, Hong Kong is an internal matter, I beg to differ, di differ with them, and I'll tell you why. When they came to America in the 1980s and said, Hong Kong should belong to us in America, we didn't believe in colonialism, and we agreed with them but we weren't willing to see them put underneath a system that was a penalty box, basically, for human rights and for democratic uh, opportunity for the people. And so they promised us it'd be one country, two systems. That was a promise for us to come in and, and side with them and convince, help convince the British it's time to pull out of Hong Kong. So now for them to impose an extradition treaty that clearly makes it one system, one country, uh, is a violation of what they said to us. And they can't have it both ways. If they want our cooperation, then they have to live up to their word. And they're not living up to the word on a number of issues. So I would say between Monroe Doctrine and what 
China and Russia are doing, Russia right now moving into the Crimea, for example. Theirs is expansionist. Ours was actually minimalist, just the opposite. On the, uh, on the situation in Syria, uh, it's obviously uh, very, it's probably the most complex security situation that I've ever experienced. Um, I think you're aware that I resigned over the threat to pull out. Uh, so I don't have a whole lot more to say. I think that what you're looking at is uh, obviously uh, a gain for Iran, a gain for Assad, and a gain for Russia. I don't think Turkey's in better shape. I realize they just did some things that uh, they're proud of, but the fact is they had no attacks coming from that area where we had our NCOs uh, monitoring what was going on, uh, our Special Forces NCOs. And so Turkey is a loser here, and the idea that uh, Russia is going to convince Assad to take one to three million refugees back in to war-torn Syria, many of whom left because they're anti-Assad, uh, this, this doesn't align well. So it's going to get worse. I, I just say, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to see more ghastly headlines out of that area in the year ahead. Uh, it's unfortunate, but it, uh, now we have to play the ball where it lies, if we play at all. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thanks for having me here tonight. Uh, it's, it's just, uh, for me, some things are work and some things are fun. Believe me, it's fun to come back to Quantico for one thing. Thank God, Sergeant Major, I would just tell you, it's great to outrank the gunnies and corporals who used to ride me harder. <laughs> um, but, uh, but also to see Americans, like none of us care who each other voted for in this room. We don't care where you go to the, on Sunday or Sabbath, whatever it is, or if you never go anywhere on those days. Uh, we don't care about anything about each other. We're all Americans here, uh, or allies. And I would just tell you that we need to get back to that. Uh, just, let me just close with one last statement. Corporal Kyle Carpenter just wrote a book. It's called You're Worth It. And he's, I've gotten to know Kyle. I knew him uh, back when he was first wounded. Saw him in the hospital. <clears throat> Saw him about a year later. He's doing a lot better, obviously. And he was riding in a taxi one night. I recommend you all read his book. I'm not pushing mine. But he's riding in a taxi. He's got a lot of stuff to do. He's going over his paperwork. And the, and the guy's an immigrant. Starts talking about why he came to America and what his life was like and how much he loves being in America. And he, He's already found out that Corporal Kyle Carpenter was in the Marines. He doesn't know much more about him. And he says, thanks for your service. And Kyle comes right back to him and says, you're worth it. Let's just remember here tonight that when, when we look around at America, let's get back to that fundamental friendliness, the respect for one another. Let's forget who somebody voted for and find out how their kids are doing in school. Let's get back to being normal people again. And when someone says, as they will to many of us here, because they'll know that we were in the military or they'll see a rucksack on somebody and you know something like that, they see our active duty folks in uniform and they say, thank you for your service. Just go back without a moment's hesitation and say, you're worth it. Every one of you was worth it. And start bringing the country's sense of dignity and worth and value back to the forefront where it belongs. We're lucky, we're the luckiest people on earth that's act like it. Thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen.